Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to be sharing with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have another guest on the show and I'm speaking to Hope Virgo. Hope is a multi-award winning mental health campaigner, speaker, author and an ambassador for the Shaw Mind Foundation. Hope suffered with anorexia for over four years before being admitted to a mental health hospital in 2007. She lived in the hospital for a year fighting one of the hardest battles of her life with anorexia. Since being discharged, she has fought to stay well and she now comes pains to raise awareness and remove stigma around eating disorders and to improve access for all to treatment. Hope is also the initiator behind the Dump the Scales campaign, which demands support for everyone suffering with an eating disorder, regardless of their weight and BMI. I'm really looking forward to talking with Hope and she's such an inspiration in sharing her recovery ups and downs in a very open and honest way. I'm excited to hear more about her journey and about her campaigning and eating disorders. Let's get to the interview. Hi, Hope, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Hope, could you just introduce yourself, please, to the listeners? Yeah, so my name's Hope Virgo, and I am an author and mental health campaigner. So I basically work all over the world doing a mixture of work with schools, corporates and hospitals and then also do a lot of work with the government in the UK. So predominantly focusing on things around eating disorders and diagnosis, but then also particularly with schools, kind of looking at that whole spectrum of mental health. Sure, no, thanks for sharing that, Hope. And I guess I'm sure you've been extra busy, haven't you, during the sort of pandemic times? Yeah, it's been interesting, actually. And I think like at first things got really quiet for me. I think with schools going online and stuff, kind of trying to navigate that new kind of, I guess, like new arena for them. But mm-hmm. definitely since September, yeah, it's been, it's, yeah, it has been really busy. And I think it's just really sad because it's, you know, like I'm just saying kind of firsthand, particularly with the school's work, like the impact of the pandemic on young people's mental health and their well-being, and seeing the numbers of people who are now struggling is, is challenging to kind of work out actually how best we should be dealing with it. Yeah, it's so tricky, isn't it? I guess it's just all the sort of like normal, healthy coping strategies have been sort of stripped away, haven't they? And with people being isolated at home. Yeah, it's really challenging to know how to handle it best. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's interesting. You said about the kind of coping mechanisms there, because what I think's happened is there are a lot of people who are probably struggling with their mental health, both adults and young people. And we all kind of functioned at a high level with a mental health issue and then when that started getting taken away that was when people ran out of those coping mechanisms and then had to resort to other things as a way to deal with everything so I think that's I think it's now navigating actually how we can replace those kind of I guess those less healthy coping mechanisms with new ones that really empower individuals to keep kind of moving forward and also to just keep talking about things yeah no sure yeah no really so needed isn't it and I mean hopefully I know today that we're having the sort of announcement aren't we and hopefully there'll be a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel for kind of you know moving out of lockdown and people going back to school again being a bit more social yeah no definitely I think yeah I think we are on the way out of it and definitely like I'm in London and 
over the weekend in London, we had some lovely weather. So I think that also really, really helps kind of just more broadly. Yeah, no, doesn't it? Gosh, I mean, it just felt like the longest winter, didn't it? And the longest January and that sort of Baltic spell we had a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, spring is on the way. (laughs) (laughs) So Hope, can you sort of tell us like kind of, obviously you have struggled with anorexia nervosa and you are sort of in recovery at the moment, aren't you? I know you've come such a long way, but I know you're very open and honest about how you, you know, you're still kind of dealing with sort of bits of the illness on a, on a daily basis. And it's, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing journey, isn't it, to recover from the illness. Could you just like take us back, like, you know, back to your sort of very early life as a little girl, what was your relationship like with sort of food and body image, you know, when you're sort of very young? Yeah, so it was. It's always been quite hit and miss, if I'm honest. So, I um, grew up in a family where there was so it was one of five of us. So, really, really kind of busy a lot of the time, quite full on. We were very active children, mm-hmm. but growing up, I guess, in the middle of such a busy family was quite challenging because particularly brothers and sisters would comment on weight or they'd say something when you're in the middle of an argument about what you looked like. And I guess for me, like some of those things were really, really challenging to then think about moving forward. Mm. But I first probably started dieting when I was, I don't know, kind of like late, probably, yeah, late junior school, I reckon, kind of going into senior school. And that was the first time I really kind of started to feel conscious of my body, what I looked like. And I vividly remember actually looking back at school photos of myself and thinking that I was the biggest person, kind of constantly comparing what I looked like to everybody else. And kind of since that kind of age 11, I would be writing in my diary every single month, like kind of goal for the month, lose weight, goal for the month, do this, restrict a bit more, do this. Mm -hmm. And I think as well, like in my family, my mum's relationship with food probably wasn't great either. So while she didn't have an eating disorder, it was definitely quite disordered in places and I think not always that healthy. And while she pushed a very healthy messaging for all of us, it became Mm. something that I was just very conscious of kind of going on around me. Mm, Sure. So it sounds like maybe as well, there were just sort of, you know, there was, you had that real awareness of your body from quite a young age and particularly that perhaps like with sort of siblings. I mean, siblings can be kind of quite unkind, can't they? And say, spontaneous things in the moment without much thought but sometimes those things can really stick and have an impact yeah I I think it's true and it's those things that you then kind of ruminate on quite a bit moving forward and I think Mm. particularly with anorexia like and like my anorexia isn't just about the body image but it did become something that was so intrinsically linked so when my weight started to change and when I started to kind of develop the eating disorder people would then comment on your weight. And we live in that society still today, don't we, where we're constantly kind of praising people for weight loss and having this fixation on dieting and calorie counting and things like that. It's just not, it's just not helpful for anyone. Yeah, it is not helpful, is it? And I think, yeah, I think I've just worked with so many people as well that have sort of said that their eating has been most disordered and at the time when they were most praised externally and really validated for how they looked. And it's just such a twisted message, isn't it? It really sort of perpetuates the disordered eating. Yeah. Um, So Hope, I know for you that you suffered some abuse, didn't you, in your early teens? And obviously for the sake of the podcast, we're not going to talk about that in great detail because this isn't sort of therapy. But was that sort of when your sort of problems with eating and body image sort of really took more of a turn for the worse 
Yeah, and it was it was a complete and utter coping mechanism. So I remember when it started, kind of sitting with a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of embarrassment around it. And also just not really sure how to feel about things. And I had to find a way to kind of survive what was going on. And for me, that survival came out in the form of kind of focusing on calorie counting and beginning to restrict what I was having. And I remember kind of like when it was when it was happening. So it lasted about kind of eight, nine months. And every time kind of we had, I guess, the times particularly around the abuse, when I'd be sitting with those emotions afterwards... I knew that in order to switch off those emotions, if I focused on food or calorie counted a little bit more or planned kind of my meals for the week, it would give me a way to just manage those feelings and get through it. And then when it finished, I just felt like I had found this kind of magical solution to life where everything would just be fine and work itself out okay if I just kept calorie counting, if I just kept numbing those emotions and getting that control from it. Mm, sure so it's interesting isn't it because it sounds like in a way it was in some ways quite a kind of conscious coping strategy in a way although I'm sure it's kind of unconscious too but the fact that you really sort of noticed even at that young age that actually when you really focused on on food and calories etc that it kind of gave you some relief and numbing from these difficult emotions yeah no definitely and I think I think like if I'd, yeah, arguably if I'd thought about anything else, whether it'd been like a movie or kind of going shopping with my friends, I think it would have probably done a similar thing, but it just mm. wouldn't have lasted as much or given me that control at the same time. Mm-hmm. Sure. So at the time then as well, do you think, did you feel sort of almost just kind of, did you almost like park those emotions from the abuse and, and very much kind of focus on on eating, on calories, etc.? And did it almost kind of freeze you a bit emotionally in a sort of protective way for a period of time? Yeah, it did. It became my complete fixation and my, yeah, my complete focus. And I liked that, if I'm honest. So I liked how I didn't have to think about it anymore and no one knew. So it was easier to hide it because I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't showing any kind of emotion towards it. Mm. And whenever I did think about it, I would just go back to the calorie counting or thinking about the food and exercise. Yeah, no, sure. And do you think at the time, did your family sort of realise that you were sort of struggling emotionally or, you know, did they kind of, did they sort of acknowledge that things were quite difficult for you? Not really, if I'm honest. So I'm very good at hiding things. And in my family, I, I'm definitely the, kind of like the fixer of the yeah. family. So kind of take on quite a big caring responsibility for everyone, which I don't mind doing it. But I think growing up, having that pressure on, on you is really, really difficult because you're trying to keep the peace. You're trying to navigate family situations. You're trying to make sure that everybody else is okay. And I've just felt like everybody else's needs were much more important than mine. Mm. And I've basically just kind of if I had any emotion around it which would be thinking about the food or would be kind of writing in my journal and that was my way of dealing with it I did rebel an awful lot throughout my teens and I think like rebelling also probably served a similar purpose to the food because it got me out of the house it was easy to pretend like everything was okay if I was being really naughty all the time Mm, sure so it's a really kind of good yeah some like distraction wasn't it really and yeah yeah, something else to think about so when you were sort of first unwell like did you sort of have any like outpatient support or did you get referred to sort of services or anything in those early stages 
No, so I didn't I didn't get any support for the first four years, but no one knew what was going on. So it wasn't it wasn't probably anyone else's fault. I certainly didn't think there was anything the matter with me. So I didn't feel the need to talk to anyone about it. But eventually when I was 16, my school contacted my mum and then I went to my doctor and then I went to the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services as an outpatient for about six months before eventually being admitted to full-time treatment. Yeah, sure. Gosh, I mean, that's quite sad for you, actually, that you were struggling for four years, you know, really alone. Although it sounds like perhaps in some ways you didn't even perhaps acknowledge there was a problem, did you, back then? No, I I didn't think there was. I thought there were moments when I felt like maybe something wasn't quite right. I remember kind of when I was out with my friends and they were all kind of eating and drinking what they wanted to. And I didn't know why I couldn't do that. But the rest of the time, I just kept thinking, yeah, this is fine. Like, it'll be okay." And I think there were evenings when I'd be in bed and kind of reflecting on the day and thinking about like how tired and emotionally exhausted I was. And there were moments when I would just wish that I would be like everybody else. But I, the next morning, you'd, I'd get up and I'd kind of look in the mirror, I'd weigh myself and I would just do think, oh, I'll just do one more day of this and everything will be fine. Everything will work its way out. And I think I just kept telling myself, if I lose weight, if I focus on food, if I, if I keep doing what I'm doing, then eventually I will be OK and everyone will be OK. Sure. I mean, I think it just shows, doesn't it, how seductive an eating disorder is, isn't it? Because I think I think it's quite a common thing that people will say in a way that they're kind of thinking, you know, just one more day, you know, tomorrow I'm going to perhaps think about doing things differently. But it just kind of keeps drawing you in, doesn't it? And just, I guess, in the short term as well, it, it kind of feels good, doesn't it, if you're achieving your goals? Yeah, it does. And it is. It's exactly like a comfort blanket, isn't it? It kind of it gives you that sense of security and numbs all of those fears and as soon as you start challenging it then you're just inundated with fears around what's going to happen to your body like what will people think and and mm. it was that security that I just think I really really longed for and I guess as well like that's probably another reason why over the last year there's more more and more people struggling with eating disorders is because it does just kind of seduce you and pull you in and give you that false sense of security and reassurance no, so true, isn't it? And I think, yeah, with the pandemic, there's just been, understandably, people have just felt so anxious, haven't they? And so uncertain. And at a time of your life as well, isn't it, where you're, you know, doing GCSEs or kind of like you're meant to be sort of hanging out with your friends and doing all those things that are so formative, aren't they? And growing up and, you know, not being able to do those things is just really, really hard. Yeah. So, Hope, so you went into hospital for a year, is that right, in 2007? Yeah, no, that is right. Yeah. So went in, yeah, and was a kind of full-time inpatient for a substantial amount of that time and then became a day patient as well. Sure. And what was your experience like of being an inpatient? Yeah, do you know what? It was it was really, really good. And I think mm. I was I think part of that was it was 12 years ago. So yeah. I wasn't rushed to get to a healthy weight. And when I was a healthy weight, I was still allowed to stay in services. Whereas nowadays, quite often people get to a healthy weight and then they're discharged. So yeah. I wasn't I wasn't rushed in that sense. And the care I got was very, very good. I had a lot of I had a very a lot of different types of care. So did a lot of one-to-one talking therapy, did bits of group therapy, did bits of exercise therapy. So a real range. It was 
unbelievably boring a lot of the time yeah. with quite often like nothing to do in the days particularly when I first went in when you're just encouraged to rest constantly which I found really really difficult but after kind of the first I guess the first kind of four or five months of being in there I was allowed to do bits of schoolwork again and just having that distraction really really helped me to kind of stay focused on that end goal of what I wanted yeah no sure yeah no, it's so tough isn't it at the beginning I think where you just like have to be on bed rest and not able to do anything but it sounds like you're there was lots of different things perhaps that were helpful to you you know like you say like the one-to-one and the group therapy and the exercise therapy so it's kind of quite a broad treatment program and also the fact that it sounds like really helpful for you that you weren't kind of rushed at the end that you were allowed to sort of stay in services and feel supported that's why you were sort of getting more used to being weight restored. Yeah, no. And I think sometimes that's the thing, isn't it? When we, when we have someone who has an eating disorder and they've been in treatment for, I don't know, however long it is. And then when you start to kind of get discharged gradually, if it's done too quickly, then the individual doesn't feel like they're heard. And Mm -hmm. so for me, actually having that space at the end to kind of, yeah, I guess offset my emotions and my feelings and still be really listened to, was really really helpful I think it's I always think think it's so difficult with eating disorder treatment though because you have to get to a state where you can manage in like the outside world so whether that's from inpatient treatment whether that's from reducing your therapy time and I think quite often you never feel ready for it but Mm. it's it's working out yeah I guess it's working out the best way to get to that state but still feeling heard within it yeah, no, sure. It's, it, it is a kind of delicate balancing act, isn't it? Because you don't want to become like too dependent on services or feel that you have to be in services almost to be able to, yeah, you know, to, to say well. Yeah, it's, it's hard kind of getting that balance. I think it's really, really true. So hope for you, you came out of hospital and then you had, you were sort of supported a bit more. And then so what, what happened next on your sort of journey? Yeah, so I was discharged just after my 18th birthday and went straight to uni. So I did three years at uni. And during that kind of whole time at uni, I was quite institutionalised. So, yeah, kind of just stuck rigidly to my meal plan, definitely for the first two years. And then gradually in my final year, kind of started to be a little bit more flexible about things. And then after that, kind of got a job for a year, went travelling for a year, worked abroad for a bit and have been campaigning now for probably about four years. So started doing kind of public speaking around the eating disorder. Yeah, about four years ago now. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And where for you on your journey, Hope? Because do I understand as well, did you try to access support again? And then I know you've got this really helpful Dump the Scales campaign. Did you try and access support again at one point and then you weren't able to? Or was that part of, you know, the road as well? Yeah, so I relapsed in 2016 when my grandma passed away and I kind of battled with it for probably kind of four or five months without reaching out for support. And then I then was kind of like, I need I need some extra support. I need to tackle this. And so I went to my doctor, got a referral to the eating disorder service in Southwest London. And then at that appointment, when they kind of assessed me, they realised that I wasn't underweight. So they couldn't offer me any treatment or anything. And it was really, really difficult when it happened because eating disorders are so competitive that I felt like this completely fake anorexic person. And I was, I was so embarrassed. I was so like ashamed and I just was so desperate to not get unwell again. 
that I didn't know what I was going to do about it. So I kind of continued struggling for the next few weeks and then ended up going back to my doctor and being put on citalopram, so a type of antidepressants, as a bit of a way to try and navigate what was happening. I was offered at that point the IAP service, which is an outpatient service which focuses on kind of generic CBT and got a ref- I think I got an appointment kind of five months later, but it, it wasn't really for me, if I'm honest. I didn't really agree with the way they were doing the sessions and I didn't really like the lady either, <laughs> which yeah. probably was the biggest problem. So yeah, kind of that, yeah, that happened. And then I think like for me, I've been in a bit of an ongoing state of recovery and kind of settled in that ongoing state of recovery for a very long time. But I also do know that you can, and I do believe that people can make a full recovery from an eating disorder. I think Mm. it's unbelievably hard. I think society makes it pretty much impossible to in places, but I think some, I think some people do and it's not because they're stronger or they're better people. It's, it's just, it just sometimes works for people. I think depending on how, long they've been unwell for and maybe what their family environment's like as well so I feel like for me now I'm in that kind of final stage where I am very determined to get to that final point in my recovery where it isn't something that dominates me again yeah no sure I mean it's really positive to hear that because you're obviously kind of really on that recovery road and continually making strides forward but it sounds like quite tough when you had the sort of relapse in 2016 that you kind of it sounds like you didn't really perhaps get quite the support that you've needed or you've had to kind of navigate that alone or sort of separate from NHS services I guess have you in, in the last few years Yeah, no, I have. And I did pay for some therapy for about a year and a half just to kind of deal with a lot of the trauma related kind of stuff that I hadn't really ever dealt with. I need as well. So I think in some situations, I think in some situations you can get to a point in your recovery where I don't feel like I need to do any more talking about stuff at the moment. I just need to kind of challenge my thinking and unpack that fear a little bit more, which is something that I can do on my own. And then maybe further down the line, I'd look at going back into some treatment therapy if I needed it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Because I think, yeah, some, I think sometimes, like, obviously, it's incredibly valuable to do the talking therapy. But yeah, sometimes you can be over-theraped, I think, can't you, if there's such a word. Or yeah. it's important to have periods of reflection and maybe developing more insight and understanding. But then it's also important sometimes just to be out there kind of practicing eating the fear foods, challenging yourself like yeah living and just doing it that way isn't it it's kind of yeah good to have a a bit of a mix really yeah Um, I agree I think I think so often like with eating disorder recovery is it is about sitting with that discomfort a lot of the time and realizing that yeah it is going to feel uncomfortable like when we have foods that we feel scared of it's going to be really hard but the more we the more we push that and the challenge that thinking and just kind of reframe it in our heads I think the better it is. And I do also think there is something in recovery from an eating disorder when you do start going out and doing stuff. And obviously right now in the pandemic, it's, it's really difficult, but actually thinking about what that might look like for you and what you, how you see that playing out. I know for me at the weekend, actually I went for a walk with a friend and just making myself get a snack out with them. Like it was, it was fine, but actually I think it's things like that. We need to be thinking, how can we bring all of this stuff into our day to day because you then start to see so many more positives about your recovery and you can focus like, yes, your weight might be changing. Yes, you might feel uncomfortable at points, 
but I guarantee you could everyone could make a list of all of those other positives within their recovery too. Mm, that's so true, isn't it? And could you share a bit of hope actually, like what have been for you some of the real positives of kind of, you know, challenging yourself with these fear foods and being more kind of nourished and like, you know, have you experienced those benefits in your daily life? Yeah, really, really good question. So I think for me, it's like having that freedom to go out and do stuff with my friends without worrying about what the food's going to be like, without worrying what's going to happen and knowing that I can be quite flexible within that. I've also got much more energy now because I'm less focused on food and calories and like not stressing about that. And so my concentration has definitely improved. I'm sleeping much better as well, which, yeah, is amazing. And I also think it's it's even things like when you have an eating disorder and you get so fixated on not allowing yourself to have certain foods, it can quite literally take over like your entire thinking for like an entire day. And so for me, just allowing myself to have what I want to have when I want to have it, yes, at times it feels uncomfortable, but actually it then just frees up my brain to think about so much other stuff as well. Yeah. And I think as well, like from a body image perspective, my body image will be improving the more I'm listening to my body and the more that I'm kind of fueling myself in the right way too. Mm, Sure. No, thank you for sharing that because I think it's, it's so important, isn't it, to be able to kind of hold on to those positives? Because I think in the moment it can be so challenging, can't it, maybe to kind of eat that fear food. Mm-hmm. But when we can kind of hold on to that kind of wider picture of the benefits and how it's really enhancing life and improving friendships and energy and all those wonderful things, it just helps with motivation so much, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I think that's the thing you sometimes just have to get so you have to just stay focused on that end goal or even like the stuff for each day thinking, and like for individuals, it could be like, I don't know, like it could be you want to go out for a, a walk with a friend next weekend and you want to have a coffee out with them. You want to have a snack out with people and actually just staying focused on that and thinking actually that would be really fun. Like not sitting around a table with my friends post pandemic, stressing about what is in the food and how it's going to make me feel. And a big thing for me, I'm, I'm getting, trying, <laughs> we'll see what happens to get married this year. And actually just realising I don't want to be anxious about my body and the food and the run up to my wedding. And so actually challenging the thinking now, yes, might feel hard, but actually in the long run, it's realising you don't you don't want to have a future that is completely dictated by food and calories and exercise and like counting your macros, everything like that. Mm, oh sure and I guess it's like a really exciting goal isn't it if hopefully you can get married this year <laughs> yeah third time um, lucky <laughs> so, oh goodness that must have been hard it have to be kind of keep being postponed yeah it was hard the first time I'm kind of now just over it if I'm honest <laughs> sure you're gonna like whenever <laughs> yeah, like whatever yeah whatever happens will happen <laughs> So have your friends and also your partner been a really important part of your recovery Yeah. So I guess from like a friend perspective first, it's definitely changed. So some of my friends really, really get the eating disorder and they feel like they can support me with it. And whether that's just kind of checking in with me on a kind of every couple of weeks or whether it's when I'm having a difficult day, kind of giving me a bit of a pep talk around it. I do have a two or three friends who are also at similar stages in their recovery from an eating disorder And that's really, really helpful, actually, kind of supporting each other in that because they will fully understand pretty much how I'm feeling. And it really, really helps to actually have that those conversations. 
And then I think as well, like having other friends around that, like at points you just don't want to talk about it. You want to just go out with your friends. You want to go to the pub. You want to sit around and just not think about food. So I think for my friends, it's definitely been like a, it's been like a balance of working out how they can support me, what that might look like, and then how they can also not, I guess, not, not collude with the eating disorder, so to speak. So realizing that occasionally I might need to know exactly what we're having for dinner if I'm going to their house. But actually, maybe when I do constantly ask, maybe push back on it and say, actually, you don't need to know, you just need to trust me. And then from my partner perspective, I guess, yeah, like he, he's so helpful. And I'm very lucky to have someone who who does understand it and has taken the time to really educate himself on it. And I think it's I think it's really difficult for partners, particularly because they're not a carer. And his yeah. role isn't to care for me. But there are moments when I probably need him to kind of be a bit more kind of on it with the caring factor. And also realizing that sometimes I will respond in a certain way to food or to, yeah, like if I don't feel like I've been really heard in a situation and might take it out on him. So I think it's it's definitely been a balance. And I think over the last, I guess over the pandemic, we've had to learn to navigate that a bit more. And particularly now I'm really kind of challenging myself and not wanting to let this kind of dominate my life anymore. He's mm. probably seeing another side of me, which he probably hasn't seen before. So I think that's been quite interesting. But I, I always think like as well, like it's so important and it's something we don't often think about, but actually we need to be checking in on the partners of those people who have eating disorders because some of the stuff that has, he has to navigate, like we just don't think about. Like I remember recently we went out for dinner and there was a last minute change of plan and he then felt guilty about it. He then was like, oh, it's going to have an impact on hope. And so we need to be having, just trying to, I guess, open those conversations. And I think a big mm. thing for us that's really helped is trying to communicate in the best possible way we can around the food, but also booking in nice activities. Yeah, like whether that is going for a nice walk or whether it's, that's obviously at the moment, but in the past, like going on holiday together and kind of learning to navigate that together has been, yeah, been interesting to say the least. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because it sounds like in a way it's just been really important to have that balance of kind of having, being able to have conversations sometimes about the food or about the eating disorder or about that struggle with people that really get it. But also it's been really important to sometimes not be able to think about that, to have like the distraction and have the kind of bigger picture and the fun things and the pleasurable things that kind of take your head, I guess, away from the focus I think it is. I think if you if you focus solely on the eating disorder, it can just sometimes feel like it's completely overpowering your life. Mm. Whereas if we're focusing on other things, I think it also gives us that kind of love of life back, which is something that so many people lose when you have an eating disorder. Mm. Yeah, no, it's so true, isn't it? And have you found hope for you and like in your recovery as well? Like, have you found the anorexia had become like a sort of integral part of your identity? You know, is that something that's been a struggle, perhaps, although you don't really perhaps want it to be our identity, you want to be moving beyond that. But has there been, have there been aspects of it that have been difficult to let go of because of that? Yeah, there definitely has been. And I think the main thing with, for me is it's, it's always been an, an easy, is not the right word, but it's always been an easy way to show that I'm not okay. And mm. I think sometimes when you've had an eating disorder, people still judge, people still do judge the outward appearance so much more so. And you have to find your own identity elsewhere, even though it does feel 
like you don't really always know where to look or how to look at stuff like that Mm, sure I mean I think it's such an interesting thing actually because I think I just think so many people that I've worked with as well that will really resonate with this about kind of in a way of it being a means of communication sometimes of perhaps showing other people that you're not okay particularly perhaps when that can't be communicated through words or other means and that can be quite tricky perhaps to let go of sometimes can't it even particularly perhaps as well I don't know if this is true for you but if you're someone that holds yourself to very high standards and kind of expects a lot of yourself if you don't have the eating disorder you maybe could feel I don't know under this huge pressure to be this kind of super coping wonder woman a bit I don't know which could feel almost a bit too much to live up to yeah I I do agree with that and I think sometimes yeah, I feel like sometimes we put people on pedestals in recovery and then you feel like you have to, yeah, constantly be doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly recently I'm, I'm learning that I need to rest within all of it as well. And yeah, yeah it's, it's been, in, yeah, it's interesting, I think, because you do, you expect, well, I expect so much of myself on a day-to-day basis and want to be kind of achieving a lot, like campaigning all the time, like hitting all those kind of things that I want to do. And I also have a brain that, it's just got so many ideas all the time that I find it sometimes hard to kind of streamline that. And then I get on and I get on with one idea and I'm like, oh, I need to, I want to do that. And then how am I going to fit that in? And yeah, so I think, I think something that I have learned over the last kind of year and a half, definitely, and I'm still not great at it, but, and I think this is for all freelancers probably as well, is that it's okay to not be really busy all the time. And even though the eating disorder part of my brain will be telling me, no, you need to be doing something to be achieving stuff. You can't just rest and all of this sort of stuff. I think, yeah, I'm learning to, I'm learning to rest more and realizing that when I am quiet, I don't need to create work for myself to do. Mm, Sure. Yeah, no, sure. I think it's a challenge, isn't it? I think it's a challenge in our culture generally, isn't it? The people, it's almost like a kind of badge of honor to be like super busy but yeah, I think particularly as well, when you've had an eating disorder, I think that sort of striving part of you is often extremely kind of strong. And I think, you know, a lot of people with eating disorders are incredibly driven and be prone to perfectionism. And it can be really tricky to kind of self-soothe, self-care, rest, you know, do all those good things. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes why like having people that you can be accountable to, it's it's so important in that sense, isn't it? To just make sure you're not you're not pushing yourself too much when probably you need to take a bit of a step back and you need to rest a little bit more. But again, it's, I think it's, it's been hard this year, I think for a lot of people, because maybe their way of dealing with the pandemic has to become like a massive workaholic when actually that probably isn't, yeah, that isn't the way to do things. Mm, Yeah, for sure. So could you tell us a bit more about the Dump the Scales campaign? Yep. So, so I launched Dump the Scales about two years ago. And the reason being is that people with eating disorders find it very difficult to get support on the NHS unless they're severely underweight. Mm. And it doesn't just affect people with anorexia, but obviously with bulimia, binge eating disorder, ARFID. A lot of people are just facing this complete injustice around the treatment and care they need. So the campaign is all around making sure there's the proper education available for GPs, for A&E staff, for dentists, you name it, kind of everyone, as well as that looking at actually what treatment is out there, whether that treatment is accessible for people, whether it's funded in the right way, and then a wider kind of messaging looking around 
getting rid of a lot of that stigma that is so often wrapped up in eating disorders and the stigma around kind of eating disorders being something that just affects white teenage girls to the stigma that it's about being underweight or about being a certain body size. So yeah, working to that and it's, it's, go, it's going well. So the mm-hmm. petition's got over 100,000 signatures. It's been debated in Parliament a number of times. Last week, I met with Nadine Doris, her office, to talk to them a, lot, a bit actually about what the policy calls are, what we're really asking for and what we're really pushing for. Mm. Yeah, no, fantastic. I mean, I think just such a kind of game changer, I think, for the whole of treatment of eating disorders, isn't it, actually, if we can kind of move away from BMI and numbers and actually just you know, treat everybody with their disordered eating symptoms, eating disorder symptoms, regardless of how they look. (laughs) Yeah, it is ridiculous. And I think it will. Yeah, I'm hopeful that the more we move away from that kind of focus on the look, the more we're focused on things like early intervention and also just getting it will just get rid of a lot of the shame that often comes up with eating disorders. Yeah, no, definitely. And do you think hope as well? Because I'm just thinking as well at the moment in terms of obviously like more and more young people are struggling with eating disorders, you know, more and more people are struggling with body image issues. And, you know, in terms of what's rolled out in schools a lot at the moment, I mean, I know there is a lot more mental health focus, which is really, really positive, but there's still like a lot of this stuff, like with kind of healthy week and like weighing children in school. And it just seems to me that it's kind of, we need to have a bit more of a sort of joined up approach, don't we, of kind of like teaching people from really, really young, really more about their kind of relationship with food. And, you know, rather than all these messages about kind of this being healthy, this being a good food, this being a bad food, kind of kind of looking at it more in that kind of on a sort of deeper level and how it relates to mental health. Yeah, I think there is. And I think one of the things that often comes up with schools, particularly schools work is that kids are at the moment taking their kind of nutritional advice off Instagram and from kind of influence they're seeing on Instagram. So I think that's the first thing that needs to be tackled. It needs to be looking at actually what information is out there and how detrimental that is and getting rid of a lot of those, yeah, I guess that lack of understanding around food. And then also then just looking at that more holistic approach to it, like you say, like making sure that we are talking about mental health and well-being as a as something that just is just normal in schools it's interesting actually because with schools work particularly you have some schools that just seem really really hot on it and really really get it really really care really want to do something but then you have other schools who are so afraid of talking about mental health and particularly afraid of talking about eating disorders that they'd rather just pretend it's not something that's happening Hmm. Sure. No. So interesting. You know. I mean. I think that's sort of a, a sort of general kind of feeling. Sometimes, generally, isn't it that people are scared to talk about mental health, scared to talk about emotions? You know, with a fear almost of making things worse. When actually, of course, actually talking about those things, you know, on the whole, really makes things a lot better. Yeah, it does. And I think we need to move away from that so that we can then, I guess, empower people to then work out what they can do to really manage their own well-being. I know. I know for me, like I obviously didn't talk to anyone about anything for like four years. And as a result, ended up in a mental health hospital. Yeah. And there will be loads of other young people who were really struggling at the moment who just don't know how to talk about things or where to go or or you just feel so isolated. You're, you kind of think no one else will be going through what you're going through. So maybe it isn't really an issue. 
Yeah, no, it's so true, isn't it? And I think, yeah, just that sort of early intervention and being able to talk openly is so key, isn't it? Because I'm just thinking myself, I work in an adult eating disorder service. When I work with people that have had intervention often through CAMS, um, you know, through the child and adolescent services, just the fact that they've been able to have that talking therapy and they've got that insight and awareness, it does really give them a real head start, I think, for managing their mental health for the long term. Yeah. And just kind of, I think as well as a young teenager, you are probably more open and more malleable in a way. Whereas by the time you even get to your late teens or early twenties, you become a bit more fixed in how you look at things. Yeah, no, it's true. And we're less probably, I think as well, when you're, when you're an adult, you you maybe have lived with it for so long Mm. that you kind of just settle at being, feeling pretty unhappy a lot of the time, maybe, but you just get on with it. Yeah, no. And really. actually, I don't think that's I don't think that's right. I think people should be given the chance to to live their best life. And I hate that phrase, but I think it is like we need to just yeah not accept when we're struggling, like not accept that we're, when we're struggling, it's okay. And actually, yes, it's okay to, to it's okay to not be okay. But actually, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to get people to feel like they are able to take those steps forwards? Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, no, it's so much about isn't it, education and empowerment. And yeah, yeah, people feeling in a way that there, there are tools, there are kind of roads to be able to kind of feel better and improve their mental health. And I think you just got a really good point there that sort of thinking, you know, if you live with a mental illness for a long time, you can just feel a bit weary and resigned to it, can't you? And just, you know, you just kind of like lower your expectations and have mm-hmm. a sort of weary resignation that that's the way life is. Yeah, exactly. So Hope, do you have anything that you're sort of, that you wanted to sort of mention that you're excited about at the moment or anything you're kind of working on that you'd like to sort of tell the listeners? I guess my main focus at the moment is around dump the scales. So just working out, yeah, kind of what next steps will look like, trying to kind of push for funding when it comes to eating disorder services, particularly. Yeah. And yeah, try, I guess, yeah, I guess that's, that is my main focus right now. And mm. I guess particularly because we have seen this massive influx of people struggling with eating disorders I think it's now at kind of for young people it's 40 it's increased by 46 percent in the last year which is just extortionate so I'm going to just yeah I guess keep hammering home that message but also making sure that when people do talk about eating disorders it's being done in the right way Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think, Hope, you are doing such an amazing job. And I think, you know, I think it's just, it's been so refreshing, you know, just seen a couple of your interviews that you've done on television or news night and things like that, where it's been quite refreshing and different, I think, to have somebody really just talking very openly and authentically about their experience of eating disorders and not being afraid to sort of challenge things as well. And I think that's really been long overdue. So, you know, thank you for all that amazing work you're doing. Thank you. So Hope, where can people find you if they want to find out more about Dump the Scales or about the work you do? Yes, I'm on Instagram with my name, so Hope Virgo and an underscore. I'm on Twitter with just my name, so Hope Virgo. And then in order to find out more about Dump the Scales, the petition is set up on the change.org website. So on that, like, please do sign it, share it on your social, share it kind of with your friends and your family. But there are also like a number of kind of key updates that I try and post probably on a fortnightly basis. So kind of with bits of kind of, yeah, I guess extra information on the campaign, information on what people can be doing and and how to really get more involved in that. I think like I'm really, really conscious at the moment of making sure the campaign is really, really inclusive of everybody 
so particularly kind of if people do want to get involved with it do obviously just kind of drop me a message and I can talk to you a little bit about what that might look like Mm, okay no thank you that's wonderful hope and I'm sure lots of people listening you know if they haven't already signed the petition or got involved you know that they will do after listening to this well thank you so much hope for coming on the podcast today and you know for sharing your story and for you know all the great work you're doing no thanks so much for asking me it was lovely to talk to you so I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Hope's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And if you're interested in getting further support with your relationship with food, do go to my website, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk and there's details of my online courses, breakthrough days and training days. So yeah, do go and check that out. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.